and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to the uh, dispatch.com to become a paid member and also perhaps to find out what the Ur language of the Tower of Babel really was. Um, all right, so today we have a guest that I've been trying to get on here for a very long time. I'm, uh, as I told him beforehand, and I very rarely do this, I am a huge fan. Um, He's a professor of linguistics and, I believe, comparative literature, Columbia University, prolific writer. Um, uh, you might have seen him all over the place. He's written a bunch of really wonderful books. I've read a few of them. And um, with that, we'll just introduce him. Uh, John McWhorter, welcome to The Remnant Podcast. Very nice to be here, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so I, 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 I struggle with the... I, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but... I'd say one of the through lines of a lot of your stuff on linguistics is that um, words change, language changes, meaning changes. Uh, one need not be, I think the, the archaic term is a usageaster, <laughs> which is a, uh, a, a petty uh, sort of language and usage cop, mm -hmm. which I will admit from time to time I hypocritically am because I also make up words all the time. Um, and philosophically, I agree with you, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I, I think there's a really Hayekian strain to a lot of your stuff. Yes. Where, where words and languages are part of a spontaneous order, like institutions and traditions and customs, they, they are created to solve a problem or serve a need. Mm -hmm. And so new words and new idiom and all these things emerge um, spontaneously, and it's sort of a fool's errand to be too uptight about it. Is that fair? That is fair, and also... Remember that within this Hayekian structure, I never thought of it that way, there is also room for the fact that there's a certain amount of chaos and imperfection, that the way good and functionality comes out of a system of that kind involves that at times they're going to be wrinkles, they're going to be dings. So yes, that, that definitely is a fair portrait. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, the Hayekian point of view would agree with that. It's, a, it's an enormous amount of trial and error. Exactly. Exactly. That comes in the building of traditions and customs and whatnot. Yeah. You just think about cuisine, which I think is interestingly analogous to language, in that just imagine all the incredible trial and error that came. Can I eat that? No, I can't if it's raw, but I can if it's cooked. Who knew that? You know, <laughs> all of these things that come about. So you get this refined plate in a or fresh how tea restaurant. was invented. Like that must have been so many weird steps. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So. With all that aside, and I agree with you, again, I agree with you philosophically and analytically, I guess. It still bothers the hell out of me because this, I guess, would be the, bothers the hell is wrong. But my core critique is whenever I see you, like, defending using literally, figuratively, mm -hmm. or um, defending double negatives because they convey meaning just as much as a single negative does and all the rest, mm -hmm. I get your point. Mm -hmm. But I'm also a conservative, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a very sort of classically liberal conservative. But sometimes I kind of feel like it's the job to say, you know, not necessarily that words don't change, but can we slow it up a bit? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you get into Humpty Dumpty land where the words just mean whatever the speaker has to say. What is your heuristic? What is your limiting principle to this, this problem? Well, it really comes down to something that might seem almost mundane, but it's simply that language has changed in that way and created just those sorts of contradictions, just those sorts of things that don't make sense in the mathematical way. Forever, language has certainly existed for a good 200,000 years and possibly for a million years. And all languages have things like that. And yet it's never been found that things would have gone better for a society or a group of people if their language was cleaned up, made more logical. If somebody stood astride the language and yelled, maybe not stop, but slow down. And so if you happen to have that rattling around in your head, ancient languages, indigenous languages now, big, boring, standard languages like English, and you think, 
wow, all human speech has always been like this and the world seems to keep spinning, then you think to yourself, wow, it doesn't make logical sense, even if you're conservative in whichever sense. And I am a tidy kind of person. I like order. I'm prickly. Yet I look at something that doesn't make sense in the language and I think to myself, one, this is how language has always been and we tend to neglect how much context matters. Language is not just disembodied sentences on the page. And then two, the simple fact is that when you pronounce about these things, it never makes any difference in how people use (laughs) the language. And so you see all of these complaints over the years and it's become kind of a literature. You look at what people have thought. Obnoxious used to mean that you were vulnerable to harm. That's just 100 years ago. And you look at people complaining about it. Very smart people. And I can imagine you would have felt that way, that people are now using it to mean noxious. And that's wrong. I would have felt that way. And you read these people now before penicillin sitting and, you know, they're (laughs) writing these things with quill and ink. And you think to yourself, wow, they look silly now. And we don't want to be like that. The only one that's made any difference and I'm not sure why this one has really stuck, is the notion that you say Billy and I went to the store instead of Billy and me. And the truth is that if you look at that from, you know, bird's eye perspective, that rule makes no sense at all. And I know that everybody's thinking, well, you don't say me went to the store, but it goes further than that. And the shorthand explanation is think about French and how nobody has any problem with it there. Nevertheless, we have internalized the sense that you have to say Billy and I I have internalized that. I've already told my kids that's something you have to be careful about when you're in you know, formal context. That one has become a kind of polytest. That's the only one that's ever succeeded. And that's a pretty crappy record. And so <laughs> there's just no point. And so I just figure we have bigger fish to fry. Those are the two heuristics in this case. Okay, so um, so is, is your guidance to me that I, look, I, I've given up on decimate. Right. I just, yeah. It just breaks my heart, but I've given Good. up on that. <laughs> I, 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 I will stand, I will die on the hill of less versus fewer. Hmm. Um, I just, it just, it grates my ear. And one of the things that has come out of the COVID crisis in particular is the just incredible violence that has been done to less versus fewer. Because I watched these press conferences and people are saying we're going to have less deaths, less cases, and it's like a screwdriver in my head. And I, but, but, there's that. There's also like, what do you say about not to pick on Joe Biden, but uh, and I know you think you can say literally to mean <laughs> emphatically, right? Yeah. But there are times when I wrote a piece about Joe Biden years ago where I went and I just searched for uses of literally, and it was it was a dragon's horde of riches. <laughs> and there are times where he has said, "Listen." I mean this literally, not figuratively. <laughs> I mean, you know, you are literally the keystone to the future of America. Yeah. And if if you're going to actually say, invoke the authority of the real meanings of the words, can I condemn that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for permission. You're my pope of linguistics. I, so I, I know like, what you know. mean. There are people who are very precise speakers. You know, speaking is something that some people are better at than others. They're people who are rather raggedy speakers. And that's certainly, you know, Biden 3.0. He was never the tidiest speaker in the world, but it's gotten worse lately for what I think are the obvious reasons. The question would be, though, um, do we ever not understand them? And if we don't, understand them, then there's something seriously wrong. But to the extent that we've never thought when you say literally, and I mean that literally and not figuratively, if we know what he means, as far as I'm concerned, language is doing its job, even if he is somebody who has a certain bedhead quality when he communicates. Less versus fewer, I'm going to be honest with you about this. I am somebody who has always lived on the printed page, I'm a language person. I remember when I learned about, thank God I went to Montessori schools and Quaker schools where they don't teach that kind of blackboard grammar. So I just learned how to talk and write the way I want to. But I only heard about less versus fewer in the year 1997. I would have been 32. And I wrote an email and somebody really scolded me about that. They said, if you're going to communicate in public, you have to learn the difference. And I had never thought about it. And now that I know that difference, I know what you mean. 
I should have less books on my shelf. I now hear that <laughs> and I think, well, technically, shouldn't that be fewer? But then on the other hand, I can think of, you know, off the top of my head right now, eight languages where there is no difference like that, where the people think of themselves as communicating quite precisely. And so I think, well, why can't we be like that language? What's Why do we have to be so picky? So yeah, I like, I keep my food separate on the plate. I get it, but I can't say that this is based on any logical principle. So yes, Jonah, you are allowed to have those feelings. <laughs> Certainly, we all have them. I did an episode of my podcast, Lexicon Valley, not to plug it, but I guess I just did. It's a great podcast. On, I thank you. It. So it's a great. I podcast. did one about the things that I don't like. I have linguistic pet peeves where I think, boy, I wish they would stop saying that. But I know that all it is is my visceral pass by preference. We all have those. So yeah, you're allowed. But the idea that a person who does things like this on a regular basis is less intelligent or deserves sanction, it's tempting. But I feel as a linguist that it's my job to make people realize that we have an unavoidably parochial sense of what language is when we're speaking our own. There are 6,999 others. And if you have that perspective, not that I know all of them, but from that perspective, we look silly with our peeves, even though I've got them too. So yes, you can, you can have them, but it's just what you do with them. Okay, but I, so this is a good way to ease into a, a, a larger point. Um, so much of life is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. The customs and the norms that we have are utterly arbitrary. There's no reason why using a knife and fork the way, you know, uh, people who went to finishing school use a knife and fork right. is inherently superior to another way of using a knife. Exactly. But at the same time, societies are full of internal contradictions and language is full of shibboleths. And being able to uh, convey your, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a, as a social strategy, Speaking, and I, again, I understand your point about sitting in a fish outside the fishbowl looking in and talking about better and worse is kind of arbitrary and silly. But within the fishbowl, speaking properly as an individual strategy to get ahead in life is a valuable thing, is it not? It is a valuable thing. And I know exactly what you mean. And my position is definitely not everybody should be able to speak and write however they want to at any time. And there are people, and predictably it's mostly people in academia, who do make that radical argument that all of this just needs to be pulled down. I say we need to understand that people who are using colloquial or non-prescriptive forms are not in any scientific sense wrong, but we do live in a society. And so, for example, people are not going to stop hearing Billy and me went to the stores kind of slangy. You can't, you can't, it's not a hill worth dying on. And so I certainly say Billy and I as much as possible. Um, I tweeted, me and Glenn talked about this on Blogging Heads the other day and got a big cascade of people saying, you're a linguist, how dare you say me and Glenn? That is <laughs> never, that's never going to stop. And so, yeah, there are things that one does simply because you use a knife in a certain way. We use deodorant, you know, hemlines go up and down. You know, even these days I'm seeing men with their pants cuffs up high in a way that would have been considered ridiculous five years ago. It doesn't make any sense that that wouldn't have been allowed five years ago. This stuff is absurd, but we are stuck with it. And so I think that people need to be taught what the prescriptive forms are, because if you go about doing certain things, you will be thought dumb, or at least it will interfere with the authority of your message. And that includes, I'm glad that we no longer in public have to talk like William Jennings Bryan, that you and I are speaking normal English right now. We're not doing what somebody would even have been doing on old radio 80 years ago. But to get up in public and to talk like you're having a beer at a bar, the way, for example, our president does, I consider that ineffective communication. There is a certain degree of control that one ought have when making public statements because they're so important. And so you want your meaning to be as clear as possible. So I get you. I get you on that. It's just that I bristle at the idea that somebody who makes these mistakes is a dummy or, you know, nobody has assailed me on Twitter for saying me and Glenn, I've done it many times and I'm almost doing it to twit people. But the idea that anybody would think, well, as a linguist, don't you realize that that is a mistake? Because it's not a mistake. It's a social tort. 
which is something different. So we're talking about a, a rather subtle distinction here. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, again, as this, I mean, this brings out the small C conservative in me in a lot of ways. Um, uh, it is, I mean, like, there's that scene in Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon says to you know, the girl asks him out for coffee, and he says, "Well, you know, why don't we just get together and eat caramels instead?" Mm-hmm. She's like, "Huh." And he says, uh, well, it's just as arbitrary as drinking coffee. And I, I get that argument. But in fact, historically, contextually, there are lots of reasons why the custom, in the Hayekian sense, the custom of drinking coffee has emerged and the custom of eating caramels is not. <laughs> and, um, and so this gets to, like, this is one of these, it's very hard to communicate. But it, so in, in the sort of Hayekian, Burkean understanding of institutions, which I think language is an institution in the broadest sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's immense meaning that is within these institutions, sort of the same way that Hayek would write about how the number of variables that are in the price of a loaf of bread is almost infinite. It has to do with weather patterns in Indonesia. It has to do with, you know, uh, crop failure in South America. All of these things factor into it. It gets boiled down to just a price. And in language, I think there are an enormous number of things that are embedded in these things that we don't necessarily know, but we should have some, and again, I, I'm, being, I'm, I'm being tendentious because I basically agree with you, but we should have some respect for, mm-hmm. maybe I think we should have more respect for it than you do, um, in that uh, this, this language has served a useful purpose for a very long time, or this phrasing, or this idiom, or whatever you want to call it, and to willy-nilly cast it aside because it doesn't work for you personally seems to me problematic. I know that- just what you mean, that word problematic. The um, This is my answer to what you're saying, which I fully get. I get it. I mean, we're much closer together than some people might think. But the problem is not only the way you can put something in Chinese. It's not only the way you could have put something in old English, which isn't any language we recognize. One thing that makes me feel the way I do is that you can go through some elocutionist's guide from 100, 125 years ago, right here in in America, you know, right in New York City, where somebody is writing, here's how you should talk, here are the proper rules. And that's what this very serious person with three names actually thought. And people, these were best-selling books. And you see that some of the things that they were concerned about make no sense to us now. And it really points up the arbitrariness. And so who cares what Shakespeare was doing? Because we think, well, that was you know 7,000 years ago. I don't mean who cares about Shakespeare. But this guy, it's somebody who Edith Wharton would have had over to dinner. And he'll say, you can't say the first two children. You have to say the two first children. Because if you say the first two children, you mean a pair of children as opposed to another pair. Two first is what you have to use otherwise. Well, what the <laughs> F is that? And then that one just kind of passed away. And then people started complaining about other things. And so it leads you to think, don't be him. And so, yes, one might think some of these things, even if they don't quite seem to make sense, may serve some sort of purpose. They may be part of some sort of organic web. It deserves a certain respect. We start thinking of Burke. But then I start thinking of William Henry Fife, which is one of my favorite of these people, and thinking, here's what he thought English was supposed to sound like. And American, not British. And now he would sound like a Marsman. And so what are we going to look like in 125 years? So that's another thing that makes me think about these things. It's, it's the recentish past where I just think we have to be careful what we think of as valuable. And yet, just like he bristled to hear somebody saying first two, I bristle to hear somebody saying there's books on the table. I always think, damn it, there are books. There's (laughs) books doesn't feel right to me. I don't like that one at all. I've always not liked that one. And yet I know intellectually, go into the language next door and they have no problem with that at all. And so who am I? to complain. And I'm not sure that I can think of it as an institution. I think of it as just a randomness that certain people have made us think about. But I very much take your point. So I have a really weird uh, tangent question for you. Um, The the word Jew Mm -hmm. is a weird word in the English language. It um, It is a descriptor, right, of a person of a faith or a 
nationality, however you are, ethnicity, whatever, however you want to break it down. But it is the only word I know of that if you use it as an adjective, it's an insult. Um, if I say a Jewish lawyer, it's a lawyer who's Jewish. If I say a Jew lawyer, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is it has this anti-Semitic clang to it, mm -hmm. and um, and it is it, it is it is the only I think it's the only word in the English language that I'm aware of. You have a much more expansive knowledge of these things, where it violates the sort of rules. You can say you you would say you're drinking Turkish coffee, but you wouldn't say that person is a Turkish. No. Um, and Jew sort of sits outside. Do you know any idea where this comes from? Is it a, is it a legacy of the Holocaust thing? Did it predate the, the Holocaust? I, I, I just, I'm always wondering about it. You know, Jonah, I don't know. I know that there is something unique going on with that word. It's one of the wrinkles of the language. It's one of the things that you would pity a foreigner for having to master because it's very subtle. You know, why can't you say Jew lawyer? And yet, we know as native speakers that that's a horrible thing to say. There are so many arbitrarinesses in language, you know, it's what we've actually been talking about. And so, for example, what technically is wrong with saying Chinaman? You can listen to old radio shows and old movies and people say it with complete respect with Chinese people standing right there. But at a certain point, that became a slur, and we accept that, and so you don't talk about the Chinaman anymore. Same thing with Jewish and Jew lawyer. I'm guessing that Jew lawyer was considered a very respectable thing to say in 1905. You can imagine some yellowing newspaper. And it wasn't that a wasp wrote it and Jews were just expected to put up with it. Notice also that Jewish people is better than Jews. I would feel oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. funny yeah. saying that. Yeah, and so Jewish people. But I get the feeling that Jewish people may have written Jew lawyer. Now I'm going completely outside of my expertise. I think it's arbitrary, although we have to observe those particular shibboleths when it's about slurs against people. But I've also never thought about it. And so you're catching me off guard, but I suspect it is the magnificent arbitrariness of language and how it works. <laughs> All right. So, um, all right, so let, let, let's do a little deeper dive on the shibboleth point. Um, so... One of the things I've sort of become kind of fascinated by is, um, you know, I wrote this book. It was about nationalism and populism and all these things. I recall. And um, I read Johann Ficht, who was one of the founders of German nationalism, along with Johann Herder. They couldn't come up with another first name, to keep it clear. <laughs> I never and, thought that. Yeah. And um, he wrote this letter to the German people. And when you read it now, it's like one of the foundational documents of of German nationalism. When you read it now, you think, oh my gosh, this guy was like a biological racist. And, um, you know, he's talking about the purity of the German language. It's not been infected by Latin and the romantic languages and all that kind of stuff. And it is the thing that binds together all of these different, uh, you know, because back then there were like 70 German cities. Not state, a country. You know, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a people kind right. of thing. And, what sort of fascinated me about it was that he was not talking in terms of biological racism, but language has this history, which again, you know so much better than I do, of almost being on a parallel track to the same kinds of arguments. Yep. And uh, I read this, this is a wonderful book, which I plugged a bunch of times on this podcast by Paul Bloom, a psychologist at Yale, mm -hmm. and called Just Babies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and it's all about the programming that babies come into the world with, you know, before um, we sort of fill their heads with cultural norms. Mm -hmm. And babies have an innate sense of fairness. Um, they have innate sense of, of us versus them, distrust of strangers, all of these kinds it's of things. It's the anti-blank slate argument, right. Right, yeah. right. You know, and um, as I always say, we come into this world with factory preset uh, software, but we need updates. Right. And um, the and one of the things that he talks about in some of these studies about about babies is that in fact language is a far more powerful separator mm -hmm. than skin color. Is. Yeah. It's very easy to convince a little kid that skin color doesn't matter, but language kicks off something in their brains Definitely. very different. Yeah. Um, so first of all. Uh, you know, this is one of these things that I, you know, it's a, it's a fraught subject, but 
it seems to me that a lot of the things that we imbue in race and class are really sort of uh, die markers for language mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you hear an African-American like yourself or, um, or someone from, you know, an immigrant community or whatever, whatever it is, the second they speak in a, again, I'm not trying to be pejorative about anything, but in a mainstream bourgeois articulate, I know articulate is a fraught word too, way, mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff kind of melts away. Mm -hmm. First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, is it true? Is that a global phenomenon? I mean, is it a universal human thing? And also, isn't, wouldn't that argue for mm. a really robust mm. sort of mm. push for teaching sure. proper usage as a way of, of lessening social differences? That's a neat question, and this is this is my answer to it. No, but for a particular <laughs> particular reason. It's interesting how kids are are born. There was an experiment done recently by um, the psycholinguist Catherine Kinsler. Little kids under about five will see, for example, a white French speaking woman and a white English speaking woman. And then they'll be shown a black French-speaking woman and a white, no, no, girl. And so a little girl who's speaking French, a white French-speaking girl, a little white English-speaking girl, and then a black French-speaking woman and a white French-speaking woman. They find it easy to imagine, easier to imagine, the little French-speaking white girl growing up to be the, the black French-speaking woman, because to them, at that age, language is more salient as a group membership indicator than race, of all things. Yeah, language is seated very deeply in us. And yes, there is a point at which if we hear somebody speaking like us, and there's an overlap between the like us and perhaps what's considered the more prestigious version of the language, then a lot of and, you know, there are certain people who, you know, would listen to this and say that, well, not enough, but a lot of the bigotry, a lot of the guardedness goes away because you talk like them. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Now, doesn't that mean that we need to pay more attention to teaching prescriptive ways of speaking? I would venture to say not, but it's just a matter of priorities in that, for example, you can listen to Booker T. Washington, who was born a slave. You can listen to recordings of him. You would never know that he was black, never mind slave. He was black. If you weren't told, he learned something. He learned how to do something where it must have taken a great deal of effort and self-consciousness. And my point is not going to be, and look how far that got him. That's not it at all. But imagine a person having to go through all of that in order to, in his day, be listened to at all. I see that as something where the reset, the new, the, the new revision of the software was necessary. I watch people in the past having to go to such effort to be considered authoritative at all in terms of changing the way they talk, where I wish that society could have relaxed that a little bit and been able to listen to their ideas through whatever non-standard sound or even occasionally non-standard constructions they used. I think of that as an advanced way of being. Where do you draw the line? Hard to say. Chris Rock in his you know comedy routine mode could not become president of the United States like he did in that dandy movie that he did. <laughs> and so, and I don't think that that's a bad thing, but I hope people don't have to work too terribly hard. I don't want people to have to learn the difference between less and fewer in order to be taken seriously or with literally how to use it in the very, very old days. And you know, the usage that bothers people goes back hundreds of years, but let's imagine that literally is still being used, quote unquote, literally given that there are dozens of other words like that that mean their opposite. You're stuck fast and you run fast, et cetera, that don't bother us. Literally just got chosen. It was that fifth grader who everybody started picking on that one year. I figure, why bother with that when the education system itself is so poor anyway? We're dealing with a time when a great many brilliant people are genuinely under the impression that when it comes to battling power differentials, one no longer needs to think at all. I would rather teach people how to think think rather than teach people niceties of expression. I'd rather people learn to hear, and, so, and now I end up sounding like the people I'm just talking about in a way. I want people <laughs> to be able to listen through speech differences and hear brilliance and articulateness. That's my preference. I, 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 look, that would be my preference too. I mean, I, I, you know, 
you just sort of like I always say, you, you know, you, you judge people by what you what they do, you know, not what they think. Exactly. You judge people what they, you know, you take people as you find them. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm with you. But like, let's say I am an immigrant parent and um, I speak like my father-in-law uh, was from Slovakia. I don't think if you're supposed to say a million thus over the course of a lifetime, he probably said a thousand. Yeah. He just never had a the. It's hard. And to you name. just, yeah. That's yeah. And, um, but you know, he believed pretty strongly in his kids being well-educated and, you know, or you take the, you know, the, the, the Hispanic family, you know, immigrants from Mexico, they may speak Spanish in the house, but they're very interested as a matter of their own kids' social, you know, life success, that they speak English and they speak English well because they understand that that's sort of just a bourgeois concession to life. Mm -hmm. And it's not like any, it's, I don't think it's a systemic racism or a systemic bigotry thing. It's life. And there, every society, it seems to me, around the world probably has similar. Yeah. It's human things, yeah. right? So, yeah. So, again, I, I guess it's just, it's, to me, it's, it's a, where are you going to draw the line kind of thing? You know, uh, Jews historically would speak Yiddish to each other because it was this sort of lingua franca of, of international Jewry, another great <laughs> word. <laughs> um, but in their own communities, when they, or when they're in their larger communities where they live, you know, they understood that they were supposed to speak German or whatever. Seems to me that 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 you know, and Southerners have this issue where there's this bigotry against Southern accents in the United States. That it doesn't necessarily hold everybody back, but it can. It, it you have to overcome the 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 prejudices of the listener to persuade them to hear the brilliance yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, so where do you? How do you draw that line? I mean, yeah. I agree with in the perfect world it wouldn't be so, but. It strikes me that you have to yeah. take the world as it is to a certain extent. I'm torn because it's interesting. One COVID thing that I've done is I've decided to put myself through watching the entire run of the Jeffersons again. Because you mentioned that on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. and I'm actually, <laughs> sadly, I'm serious. And there are about 250 episodes of that damn thing. And I haven't seen any of it since I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And I just wondered, what does that world look like now? And of course, it's a black show. And so a great many of the people who are older than young are people who were minted in the early 20th century. Anytime anybody walks on who's, you know, supposed to be middle-aged, they're from a different linguistic culture than we are. And I'm listening to a lot of the black actors on it. This is, you know, I'm 1975, 76. And if somebody is 60, they are often very white sounding during a lot of the episode. Then when things get punchy and when George gets up in their face or they have a drink or something, you notice that that person had another repertoire and that they were switching. People back then, black people back then often, not always, but often, especially if they were in any kind of public position, switched better than a lot of their equivalents do today. Not because they were better, but because the culture was different Demanded. before yeah, the yeah. 60s. So today, and this is where we're, we're differing because I can put myself in the mind of this person and I think, how hard do we want to be on them? Today, a lot of the equivalents of those actors on the Jeffersons, if they get comfortable, they're middle-class black people, they went to college, maybe even beyond that. As soon as they get comfortable, they'll say ax instead of ask. And every white person and a few of the black people in the room quietly cringe and a couple of them then write to me. That's my experience. <laughs> and so ax. And it sounds so ignorant to so many people. And most of these black people know how to say ask. They can say it. But the minute they get comfortable, they say ax because they were born probably well, you know, after 1960. And they've listened to black people in formal context, able to speak that comfortably. So they say ax. Now, you could teach them not to ever say ax, but they wouldn't be comfortable. And I wonder why. Can't we allow that the culture has changed in so many ways in terms of clothing, in terms of the way we dance, how we talk about sex, how we have sex? So much has gone informal where I think many of us wouldn't have a problem with it, right down to the way a lot of us have looked during this crisis. I was looking <laughs> homeless until about a week ago and doing podcasts, you know, visual. That 
has changed so much. Why can't language go along with it? I would ask you, Jonah, this is the thing. I get everything you're saying, but you're part of our modern times when we are not remotely as formal in our dress style and greetings. Why does language have to stay the same? What is it that you think of as special about language as opposed to all these other fashions, so to speak? Um, it's a great question. I guess my point is, is that it, it, it doesn't. Um, it, again, it's more of a pace than a binary on-off kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But for example, I think something, take it out of uh, language for two seconds. Uh, I think there is something lost when uh, people think it's fine to wear shorts and a t-shirt to church or synagogue. I think it is, there is something lost that is important um, in the fact that I, I don't think in California at this point, there is a restaurant in the in the state that has a mandatory dress code. No, yeah, and uh, there are very few in New York City. Maybe one or two, right? Mm -hmm. And um, to me, there is um, you know it's a little bit like Victorian morality. One of the things I like, I mean, with all the bad sides stipulated about Victorian England, but one of the things I like conceptually is this idea of uniform rules for social interaction, but then what goes on behind closed doors, let your freak flag fly. And again, I don't want to be, I, I, Victorians took it way too far, sure. obviously, right. but the principle to me is if you're going to live, in, if you're going to have a society where people can look past superficialities, there needs to be some common ground. This is one of the reasons why, and I'd be curious of your opinion on it, I think the NBA allowing people to wear sort of uh, corporate-approved statements of wokeness is a bad idea because I want more areas of life that are depoliticized than politicized. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is an important function of society and institutions is that you have more places for different identities that don't have to fit this uh, top-down, uh, uh, you know, uh, conformity from above. Mm -hmm. and um, But there have to be places, social places, where everybody meets, where there is some kind of common ground, some kind of lingua franca and all of the rest. And I don't say it because I'm some sort of, you know, mullah who wants to enforce codes and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think it's better for a healthy society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of, the, one of the vital functions that sports plays in life, and I'm not a big sports guy, but is, you know, I hang out in a cigar shop. And it's a great place. It's it's the most small D democratic thing I do. It's got black cops and white cops. It's got black successful black lawyers and 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 working class black construction guys. And it's a, it's it's a great sort of melting pot kind of thing. And I listen. I'm a, an inveterate eavesdropper. And the one thing that equalizes everybody is the language of sports. Is just talking about sports. And so when you politicize that, or you sort of have to, sort of, it seems to me it's a it's a problem. I would make a similar point about language is that I have no problem with people in their own communities, you know, maintaining their own dialects, their own accents, all of these kinds of things. But as a sort of uh, social lubricant to let people look past these, these shibboleths, there's an argument for people having a more robust understanding of the common tongue. I mean, I, sure. I don't want to, I don't want to sound, sure. uh, you know, bigoted or or harsh about this, but that's sort of where I'm coming from on the point. No, you're, I, I get what you mean. And it was more like that with all Americans until about the 1960s. And I did a, a, a very misunderstood book back in 2003 called Doing Our Own Thing, where I was arguing that there's been this major change in linguistic culture. And I wasn't being judgmental about it. I was just being very anthropological. But we really do live in a very different linguistic universe. And part of it is that today there is much less of a sense that we all come together on the form of language you're talking about. The thing is, where America comes together on language now is a kind of black English light. And that's been especially since the mid-90s. And so even in the cigar shop, and I am not a cigar smoker, so I don't think I've ever inhabited one, but I'm imagining 
mostly guys, probably all guys, and people are talking about sports and the cigar smoke is a wonderful repellent of anybody who doesn't like cigars and it's very gender. <laughs> so. Right. It's, everybody's <laughs> in there. And people are talking. I'm not a sports person either, but people are talking about whatever athletic activity is going on at the time. I'll bet that the way the conversation is going is more inflected with mans and bros and yos and ins instead of ings than it would have been among those guys in 1935, even if there were quote unquote Negroes in the cigar shop, which there would have been fewer of. We speak differently. And so in a way, America is coming together on something more demotic than what I think you're you're talking about. I viscerally have a sense that, yes, there should be a common space and that we're not a healthy country if that doesn't exist. It's why it worries me that there's this increasingly dominant philosophy now that the main thing to be concerned about as an intelligent American is power differentials and overturning them and all of the hostility that's associated with that. If that's the main meal, then just inherently the whole notion of an American culture that we can all come together on is erased. And I think there's a contingent of smart people who think that that's fine, that it's collateral damage. It worries me. Yeah, I I know what you mean. But I think we're coming together on a sort of casual American English demotic variety, kind of like what could have happened in an alternate Greece. And I think that that's that's a good thing. But yeah, the way grammar used to be taught in Catholic school, I don't think we're going to be able to go back to that. I share viscerally your affection for it. I get I I get what its use could be, but I think that we are just too informal now. And I don't think it's a phase. I think it's a real change in first world humanity. Yeah. So let me make a concession to your point. I have no problem with the introduction of the bros and mans and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, I have no problem with, with, you know, who, who was it who wrote that African-Americans or, or, Black Americans are the omni-Americans. Uh, the, but, but, um, the, but you know what I'm talking about. Glenn brought it up on our last show. It's that person who's famous and important. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I am sorry. <laughs> so, I, I, feel, I feel better not remembering since you don't remember either. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it is entirely just forget just, advisable. It's a good idea to celebrate the contributions that, that, that blacks have made to American culture in all sorts of ways. And, and having the language bend in that direction in some ways is a good thing too. I don't want everyone speaking the King's English necessarily. Right. I would like people speaking more of the same English right. in public fora for precisely the reasons I was talking about before. I know you have to go, but I, I, I did want you to explain sort of something I've heard you talk about before, um, how one of the things that's driven the formal, uh, the, the informality of, of, of language is that there used to be, do I have this right? We used to write one way and speak another, and now the written word is supposed to be like the way we speak. Exactly. Do I have that right? Exactly. When did that happen and why? This is something that happens in the 1960s, and it is something that happens with the emergence of countercultural sentiment, which I think did a lot of wonderful things to create a new America. But once you have the new, first of all, informality, and then also the resistance to the suits, the idea that the old wasp dominant culture is questionable, then you start having a new attitude toward how you use language, such as the idea that you write in a way that's profoundly different than you speak, and that that way that you're writing is a white, hegemonic kind of way. And so even already in the late 60s, education schools are writing manifestos that sound like they were written last week. There, it's extreme. But in the 1970s, it just permeates our entire consciousness such that that particular kind of writing starts to be associated with subgroups. You know, I went to Catholic school, and so I learned how to parse sentences, somebody would say. Nobody would have put it that way in 1945. And so it happens then with the counterculture. And of course, you and I would both, I'm sure, say that there were excesses to what the counterculture did. I kind of like the way it allowed us to relax somewhat. But a lot of that meant that that whole conception of you use language in its Sunday best 
when you're in public, and then you can talk however you want to while you're sitting by the refrigerator. That changes. And next thing you know, you get. And of course, it takes a few generations for it to happen. That, more than anything, is why you had the way George W. Bush spoke, and then especially now the way Donald Trump speaks. He's somebody who came of age just at the time when that notion that you tidy yourself up when you speak before the public ends. And so early Trump videos that we see show somebody who's just at the tail end of that, who has a sense that when there's a camera, you're supposed to clean it up a bit. But it was just that. And the Trump that we see now is really just a symptom of the times. I don't see much difference between the way he expresses himself. You know, what he says is a different thing, but the way he expresses himself and the way Sarah Palin was speaking just 10 years ago and the way George W. Bush did. We just have a more informal speaking culture than we did before. Yeah, although one of the great chasms in public life in the Bush era was when Bush was speaking extemporaneously, I agree with you. But then when he did his set piece speeches, you know, with his biblical literary references, wonder working power, exactly. angel in the whirlwind, he hearkened back to a much older notion of, of public Those speaking. real and, speeches, exactly. Yeah. And now and, we don't and, even have that, right. Yeah, right. now we have, now, well, and so I wonder, part of why I think my own theory about the way Trump speaks is, um, that he doesn't read. No. I mean, I think I, I like it boils down to sort of that. And so he can say, and maybe we can have you back on to discuss this, but like when he says, when he said in 2016 that black people in America have never, ever, ever, ever had it so bad, <laughs> um, you know, which is a big, if true statement. Um, and um, I remember Charles Crowdhammer, a friend of mine, um, he said, people who say ever, ever, ever like that are people with very small vocabularies mm -hmm. and they don't know how to speak larger. And, and when Trump speaks about all sorts of things, where he says this is the best ever, the worst ever, and all these kinds of things, no president has ever been treated so badly. You know, you could only get away with saying those things with conviction if you don't know anything <laughs> about your the past. Yep. And um, yeah, and also just the superlatives in general, very, very, et cetera. He's hesitating. He only knows so much. He gives himself power through just this, you know, putting cotton onto everything. Yeah, that's definitely what he does. Okay, I know you have to go. Just the last question then is, how do you get interested in all of this? I mean, how many languages do you speak? You know, this is a, it, it's a, um, actually, you, have to have a you have to have sort of some mutant power to do what you do. <laughs> I want to insert very quickly that your point about Trump not reading, obviously he's n never been anywhere near the printed page. But what's interesting to show that culture is still a part of this is that Sarah Palin, I don't know if she curls up with her Tolstoy, but she is a really good writer. You wouldn't expect it, but she doesn't write anything like she talks, which means that she has some connection with rubbing a noun and a verb together. But when she stands up and talks, she does what her era does. But how did I get into this? I just have this obsession with the fact that there are ways of doing what we're doing where I couldn't understand it. And I heard somebody speaking Hebrew when I was five, and it drove me up the wall. I felt like I had lost this person. And I didn't know what another language was. It was easier not to know if you grew up in Philadelphia and there didn't happen to be any Latinos around in the late 60s, you know, I'm five, it's 1970. I had never heard another language. And all of a sudden I couldn't understand. And I was literally in tears that somebody could do that. And I couldn't, I wanted to. And of course there, there's only so much you can do about it when you're five. These days I can't lay truly fluent command, um, to myself of any other language because I have so much else to do. I've got kids. I don't get to practice. I haven't lived anywhere else. And so I can get away with, as in not get smacked in the face, speaking French. I tend to undersell my Spanish, but if I have to speak Spanish, I can speak it. I understand what's being said to me. I used to be able to do that with German. It's been too long. Where I'm really insane is that I, I can read with ease in a good dozen languages. And I enjoy doing that because I just feel like one is supposed to. I do a little every day. But you can't speak a language that you're not living in. So I can't, I can speak a little of them. You know, I can talk to a cab driver in Italy, but I don't speak Italian. So I'm just, I'm a dilettante in that way. Um, well, one of my favorite intellectuals, Seymour Martin Lipset, who's a political scientist and a sociologist, used mm -hmm. to say, 
you can't understand any one country if you don't understand another country because you have to do you have a comparison to be able to come from outside exactly yeah and i should also say uh two things one uh thank you very much for saying that about sarah palin's writing skills because my wife wrote her second book uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh wow and, and i and and some speeches of hers and uh <laughs> and two thank you very much for doing this i know you're pressed for time Love to have you back because I have I have many, many more questions. Please do. And I am not always dealing with being in a lakeside cabin with two small children. And so we could we could stretch out a little more. We are a family friendly podcast. And <laughs> uh, and one of the things that's really important, particularly when you're dealing with little kids, is staying hydrated. And that's why I want to talk about hydrant. Top performers in business and sports, and I'm just going to assert linguistics, often attribute their success to their morning routine. Whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, meditation, uh, reading one of six or seven different languages, but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and of course my favorite, zinc, help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just about a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can even save more with a monthly subscription. And for right now, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com, promo code DINGO. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO, 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so uh, uh, John had to leave. Uh, he had a heart out because he had parenting duty, and this is a family-friendly podcast. Um, as you can tell, I love this stuff. I'm a huge fan of the guy. Um, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, he's had some some pointed and interesting things to say about the the woke moment that we're in and all of that, but... And if we had more time, I would have talked to him more about all of that. But I, you know, I, I really love the linguistic stuff. And I just think it's interesting just to hear him talk about this stuff. I, I fear I talk too much, but I'm sure if that's the case, I will hear from many of you that that's the case. Um, I still, you know, we're sort of in violent agreement at one level and, and, um, just slightly on a different page on another about the, the language stuff. I, you know, what was it Edmund Burke said? I must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes. Um, and what he meant by that is just sometimes you have to be, if you're a conservative, you kind of have to defend um, some aspects of tradition and the status quo longer than the hip uh, revolutionary shock the bourgeoisie types um, will allow. So, you know, I split infinitives now. Uh, I blame Star Trek for that because to boldly go just sounds cooler than to go boldly. Um, and so I take his point on an analytical level, but I, I personally think um, it would be better for um, marginalized groups. It'd be, it's an easier path to sort of bourgeois social acceptance and success. If you make some of these concessions to the demands of the larger society, um, it's what sort of every wave of immigrants did intergenerationally to one extent or another. Um, and at the same time, I, I take his point about the, it would be better if in a world we, you know, didn't get too hung up on some of the sort of accent and linguistic particularisms and, 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 and listen to what was underneath. I think that is, as a matter of values, a perfectly valid thing to say. But, you know, um, 
I just go back to sort of my dad and a lot of this stuff. And whenever I got into one of these sort of outside the fishbowl modes of looking at the weird quirks in society and um, complaining about their arbitrariness, you know, my dad would always just sort of say, well, but Jonah, that's normal. And what he meant by that, you know, I'm not talking about bigotry or prejudice and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about, you know, um, you know, making concessions to the way things are is part of what it means to uh, be a grown-up and to grow up in society. And I think that one of the things, you know, I've talked about this a bunch of times, you know, Yuval, you know, makes this point about how institutions have gone from being shapers of character uh, to platforms where you get to shine your character and, and to perform. And I, I brought this up before, but, you know, the example I, I think of is, you know, the, the best, most obvious example are things like the Marines, where you, you go in sort of an irresolute teenager, and along with your crew cut, you're taught certain things that mold your character, and you come out of the Marines a Marine, and, or at least out of, you know, the training part of it, a Marine. And that role of institutions is being lost every single day. And I think it's one of these things that uh, once you see this distinction, whether it's, um, you, know, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick or what's-her-face from uh, Theranos, uh, um, was it Elizabeth Holmes? I can't remember her name. Uh, or, uh, you know, these teenagers who just want to be famous for being famous on Instagram or... Um, you see it all the time in journalism where people are using their Twitter and Instagram accounts um, to show off their own personality and their own views when traditionally sort of mainstream journalists, reporters, not opinion people, but reporters, were supposed to keep that stuff in check. You know, we recently had Chris Wallace on and talked about this a little bit. You know, the that old mode of not hinting what your own views are, but just simply trying to report the facts is a style of character formation that is is gone by the wayside. And now you get people who want to be, uh, you know, want to call themselves journalists, but really are is just basically performers. Um, and I am guilty of some of this myself. I'm not like a straight reporter. And I think there's something similar going on with language where you get this amazing pushback to the idea that there should be some push towards conformity in language. And I, I think one of the most glaring examples of this is the whole English as a second language thing, where um, the notion that you should be teaching the children of immigrants, mostly Hispanic immigrants, but also you know, Asian immigrants and others, uh, standard English usage is decried by you know, a handful of, of activists and ideologues, particularly in sort of the education school industrial complex as a kind of like cultural genocide or something, which is so absurd given the fact that the parents came to America so that their kids could be Americans. And when you factor in the fact that like English as a second language programs in schools at the end of the day hold the, are, are, are a drag on those kids' chances for success. I'm all in favor of kids holding on, you know, immigrant kids holding on to their mother tongue or their parents' tongue keeping those traditions alive and all the rest. But if you want them to succeed in life, teaching them standard English and how to speak it well and, and, and um, authoritatively is their shot towards bourgeois success. And I think that one of the things that sort of colors a lot of this debate is this idea that um, uh, people should not have to make these compromises, that we should be um, we should take everybody as they are and not expect them to sort of conform to um, a mainstream standard. And it, it's, it's one of the reasons why, at, like, California schools, assimilation is now considered a dirty word. You know, they put out this memo saying that assimilation and the melting pot and similar uh, phrases and concepts are um, offensive when I think in the bygone era, they not only are they not offensive, they're sort of the basic building blocks of how you have um, a functioning country. And 
Uh, again, I, I, I hate sounding like I am the, uh, the authoritarian on all this kind of stuff because I think there's an enormous amount of give in society for allowing a lot of variation and differentiation and all of the rest. But at the same time, you need some notion of a common culture, a common language, um, common standards. Uh, and it's, to me, the, you know, the analogy to wearing a tie at a funeral is sort of, it's apt, you know. Um, I, I vowed once never to use apposite um, ever again, so just to say apt. Um, and the, you know, the, it is, it's a sign of respect. And, um, and it's a sign of, and I'm not saying that, that people who don't speak proper English owe respect to other people. I mean it is in terms of sort of the basic building blocks of good manners is, um, you know, this is one of the points I've often made about political correctness that annoys a lot of my friends on the right. There's a lot of nonsense in political correctness, enormous amount of nonsense. There's a lot of cultural Marxist hoo-ha and, and, and manipulation in, in political correctness. But there is some significant fraction of it that is just about good manners. Um, you know, just as we were talking about how, you, you know, the word Jew has this weird resonance, you wouldn't call somebody, uh, you wouldn't call a, a black person a Negro, um, even if you meant it well, just simply because it's one of these shibboleths in the culture that has moved on. And or as, as, as John pointed out, you wouldn't call, you know, someone from China a Chinaman, even though from outside the fishbowl, there's nothing necessarily in the word that is bigoted. It's just it's taken on that meaning. And so in political correctness, some of it just has to do with how you talk to people in a way that shows them the minimal amounts of respect in a civil society. And if people want to be called something, um, they have a right to expect that other people will call them that. And I just think similarly, the, similarly that language has a similar function in that um, finding some common ground about how we talk in public is good for everybody, not just the cultural hegemons at the top, but for the people who are trying to break in. Uh, everybody knows that when you go on a job interview, you should wear, you know, you should dress appropriately because first impressions matter. Language has a powerful effect on how we process strangers. And it's in everyone's own interest to be able to speak in a way that it doesn't become a hindrance to the impression that they're making. And I know that this is outrageously bourgeois of me and it is completely out of fashion, but that's sort of where I'm coming from in all of this. And since we went short, I figured I would just get that in there. Okay, so um, uh, uh, some process notes. I am leaving, today recording this on Tuesday, I am leaving for Alaska. Uh, we are f tomorrow. Uh, we are having a um, delayed memorial service, party, celebration, uh, get-together for my brother-in-law who passed away a little while ago. And um, so it's a command performance. I will try to podcast from the great north. Um, I am looking forward to being in Alaska. I am not looking forward to being in the... Um, COVID transmission tube at 30,000 feet. Uh, so, you know, I'm taking my life into my own hands here, but uh, such as it is. But in, it, it may be that there's some irregularity to the schedule of the podcasting. And I will be traveling a bit um, later this summer, more about that later. Um, other than that, uh, please, you know, uh, we get good numbers here at The Remnant. We want more. If you can if you can spread the word, give us reviews at all of those podcasting platforms, that would be wonderful. But if you don't listen to uh, the Dispatch podcast with me and David and Steve and Sarah, uh, you should give that a try too, because it's uh, it's often good stuff and it's much more on the news. Uh, you know what what he, what we hear at this podcast call rank punditry, um, but you know rankness is in the eye of the beholder or in the nose of the smeller. Um, uh, and, uh, and again, if you can go to thedispatch.com and become a, a paid member of the community, that would be awesome. It allows you to comment on stuff. I, 
I read all the comments. I don't always reply to the comments because often the comments devolve into comments on comments on comments on comments. And um, it becomes sort of like a matryoshka doll. And, uh, but I do read them all and I do try to chime in from time to time. And so far, with a few exceptions, the comments have not descended into the uh, vile swamp that most comment sections are. You can actually have respectful disagreement in there. Um, and we hope to be able to sustain that as we scale up and end up conquering the universe with this um, you know, fully functional podcast, our, our website, our magazine, or media platform, or all of it. You know, um, And we won't have the vulnerable exhaust tubes either. So uh, with that, thanks again to everybody, and especially John McWhorter, who I've wanted on here for a very long time. I hope he'll come back. And I'll see you next time. Yo, see it? This is that one podcast. Is there a language that you would feel comfortable other than English saying, no, you won't, this is a podcast? I'm going to use <laughs> the... Um, Esperanto? No, I'm going to use <laughs> the language that runaway slaves in Suriname created, and they now live in the rainforest hundreds of years later, and they speak their own language, which is a mixture of English, Dutch, Portuguese, and two African languages. It's a complete singleton. And that is... I've written a book about that language. And so if it's going to be, um, no, you won't, then because this is a podcast, then the way they would say that is y'all see it? This is one podcast. So.